Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masterson. Today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an update on the war between Israel and Hamas, with the possibility of an escalation on the northern border with Lebanon, following an exchange of fire between Israeli forces and Hezbollah. Joining us is Dr. Guy Ziv, a professor in the Department of Foreign Policy and Global Security at American University School of International Service and associate director of the Meltzer Schwartzberg Center for Israel Studies at American University, where he teaches courses on U.S.-Israeli relations and Israel-Palestinian peacemaking. He has worked in the United States Department of State on Capitol Hill and for leading nonprofit organizations that promote American involvement in Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking, and is the author of Why Hawks Become Doves, Shimon Peres and Foreign Policy Change in Israel. And his forthcoming book out soon is Netanyahu versus the Generals, The Battle for Israel's Future. Then we'll examine the colossal intelligence failure on the 50th anniversary of another Israeli intelligence failure, resulting in the deaths of 600 Israelis and up to 100 held hostage, and speak with Daniel Byman, who is a professor at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and editor of the Lawfare blog. He served on the 9-11 Commission staff and is the author of a number of books, including A High Price, The Triumphs and Failures of Israeli Counterterrorism, and Road Warriors, Foreign Fighters in the Armies of Jihad, His latest book is Spreading Hate, The Global Rise of White Supremacist Terrorism. Then finally, we'll assess the future of the Israeli-Saudi Arabia normalization deal and speak with Emma Ashford, non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point. With expertise in the politics of the Middle East, Russia, Europe, her work focuses on questions of grand strategy, international security, and the future of U.S. foreign policy. She's the author of Oil, the State, and War, the foreign policies of petrostates, and we will discuss her article at World Politics Review, the Saudi-Israeli normalization deal doesn't add up for the U.S. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now, Dr. Guy Ziv, is a professor in the Department of Foreign Policy and Global Security at American University School of International Service and an Associate Director of the Meltzer and Schwartzberg Center for Israeli Studies at American University. He's worked in the U.S. Department of State on Capitol Hill and for leading nonprofit organizations that promote American involvement in Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking, and is the author of Why Hawks Become Doves, Shimon Peres, and Foreign Policy Change in Israel. And his latest book out soon is Netanyahu versus the Generals, The Battle for Israel's Future. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Guy Zinn. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for joining us, Guy. And there's a lot of uh, recrimination going on in Israel with uh, Netanyahu in the crosshairs. There's an editorial today in Haaretz 
Netanyahu is responsible is the title. And it's and just to quote a little bit of it. Above all, the danger looming over Israel in recent years has been fully realized. A prime minister indicted in three corruption cases cannot look after state affairs as national interest will necessarily be subordinate to extricating him from a possible conviction and jail time. This was the reason for establishing this horrific coalition and the judicial coup advanced by Netanyahu and for the enfeeblement of top army and intelligence officers who were perceived as political opponents. The price was paid by the victims of the invasion in the Western Negev. So do you think that Netanyahu's in trouble? I think that in the immediate term, he has the support of uh, a public that is currently not focused so much on politics, but on defeating uh, the enemy. Uh, yesterday was the most uh, catastrophic day in Israel's history, um, at least since the Yom Kippur War, which occurred uh, almost exactly 50 years ago. And like that October 1973 war, the surprise attack by Hamas was a colossal strategic failure. And somehow Hamas managed to attack uh, and successfully penetrate Israel by land, air, and sea. We saw thousands of rockets fired at uh, Israeli cities. As of today, um, the uh, Israeli government's reporting that over 600 Israelis have been killed, over 2,000 injured, and uh, perhaps uh, as, as many as 100, possibly more Israelis, including entire families, have been uh, taken captive. So, so this is a real uh, catastrophe. Now, over the longer term, uh, yes, Netanyahu obviously bears a good deal of responsibility for this disaster. It took place under his watch, and there is a certain irony to him having cultivated this kind of self-image as Israel's Mr. Security, quote-unquote, yet uh, Israeli deterrence has crumbled significantly under his leadership. And could the situation escalate? There's the exchange of fire on the northern border between Israeli forces and Hezbollah. What's the latest on that, Guy? Well, the Israelis are, are clearly focusing on uh, multiple fronts because uh, Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah in Lebanon, has long made it clear that uh, he is just fighting his time, waiting for the moment uh, to attack. And there were some mortars that fell earlier uh, today um, at, a, uh, at, a, at an area that's kind of on the border. Uh, but hard, it's called Hardov. It's a it's a community that's uh, that borders Lebanon. But as of now, Lebanon is not involved in the war, and hopefully this will be contained because otherwise we're looking at a, a major regional war as opposed to a an Israel Gaza war with Hamas. But if it were to escalate uh, with Hezbollah, it seems likely to me that. Israel would strike back at Iran. Do you think that's a possibility? I think it's a possibility, but there are multiple ways uh, Israel has shown that Iran can be hit. And it's not necessarily all related to military strikes, right? There's, uh, there's been a lot of uh, cyber attacks and other forms of uh, attacks on the Iranian nuclear program. Uh, not to mention attacks on Iranian targets in Syria and elsewhere. So uh, an all-out war with Iran is not something I'm foreseeing, and, and certainly I don't think anyone 
wishes for that to happen. Um, but a, a war with Hezbollah and Hamas and Islamic Jihad, uh, a kind of militant rival of Hamas in Gaza, that is certainly likely. Uh, Iran's uh, proxies, of course, in the region. So what's happening with Russia? Because uh, Russia, obviously, with its presence in Syria, where Hezbollah and Hamas have offices, their intelligence people must have known about this. So Netanyahu has cultivated his relationship with Putin, but it doesn't seem to be working. What do you think? Well, those relations are strained for the time being. There was an arrangement that Israel had with Russia and Syria, enabling Israel to target uh, Iranian uh, assets in, uh, in, in Syria. But uh, as of right now, the, the, there's been a deterioration in the uh, relationship between Israel and Russia, largely because of Ukraine, of course. And I don't know if Russia is really a factor here. We don't know enough to kind of speculate here. Um, it's pretty clear Iran is involved. It's not clear Russia has anything to do with uh, the attacks we've seen in the last 24 hours. So Israel has cut off electricity and is bombing the Gaza Strip, and it's the most de densely populated piece of territory in, on the planet. So it's very hard not to incur collateral damage, as it's euphemistically called, with civilian deaths. What do you foresee in terms of the escalation? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, Kai, but I think Israel has encouraged Gazan civilians to get out of the Gaza Strip, but I don't know where they would go. And of course, you've got up to 100 or more uh, hostages held as well, that they could be endangered. So what do you foresee as Israel's punitive strategy Going well, forward. I think that their strategy, and, 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 and this alludes to what you said about warning residents to, to, to leave the scene, the, you know, this really attests to the desire to prevent um, uh, untold civilian uh, losses here. I mean, there is a big difference between kind of responding to terror attacks and uh, what we saw yesterday with Hamas's unprovoked act of aggression. And so what we saw in the last 24 hours, what we saw today as well, are not just soldiers, but entire families with children being taken hostage, Hamas fighters breaking into people's homes, shooting innocent people point blank, uh, residents of communities along the Gaza border uh, murdered in cold blood. There was some footage of uh, a corpse of a naked woman who was paraded through the streets by Hamas fighters. These are all kinds of things that Israel is, is seeking to clearly avoid and prevent the loss of uh, innocence. However, as you mentioned, Gaza is, a, is an extremely dense territory, and it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to avoid civilian casualties. And Hamas has a history of using their own people as human shields. And of course, I'm sure they're going to use uh, some of the hostages they have as human shields as well. Um, so this is what we're seeing right now is a first declaration of war uh, by Israel since the Yom Kippur War. So this is not going to be any kind of ordinary exchange of fire. It's not going to be any sort of limited military operation. The objective here is to destroy the military wing of Hamas full stop. And that's going to take um, uh, weeks, if not months. So just to touch on your forthcoming book out soon, the Netanyahu versus the generals, the battle for Israel's future, guys, Ev, 
obviously, I don't think here in the United States, we don't even have a functioning House of Representatives. Um, so it's pretty hard for the for the eight leaders to get together, House and Senate intelligence heads, to discuss what's happening. I, don't, I think they may have had, maybe having a briefing today, Sunday. But on Israel's side, you've already had threats from reservists and others that they won't show up for work or show up to serve because they've been protesting Netanyahu's power grab to take over the judiciary. And these noxious far-right people he has in his cabinet, including um, Ben Gvir, who is the national security minister, my understanding is that the Israeli national security establishment don't want to give him briefings. Is that correct? That is correct. And uh, this is this government that Netanyahu put together uh, last December uh, is the most extreme government Israel has ever had. Um, it's it's composed solely of uh, right wing and religious. Uh, Far right extremists. In fact, Netanyahu might be the most liberal uh, member of, of of his government. Um, this is something that uh, has not set uh, sat well with the national security community. Uh, that's made it very clear uh, to Netanyahu that packing his cabinet with with not just right wing religious extremists, but people who are completely unqualified to serve in these uh, senior roles. Um, is something that uh, that now I think the public uh, understands is, is very dangerous, which is why there's also been talk of bringing in uh, opposition figures such as uh, Yair Lapid, who's the opposition leader, and Benny Gantz, the former IDF chief of staff, who's uh, relatively popular in Israel, uh, in, in some sort of national unity emergency government. But so the, the uh, judicial overhaul legislation brought in protests from across the country that included many members of the IDF reserve. And so you had so many senior members of uh, the IDF uh, officers that were part of elite units that threatened to stop showing up for reserve duty if the government went ahead with these uh, so-called judicial reforms, uh, which the demonstrators have called a judicial coup. and. Uh, this led to a deterioration of cohesion within the IDF, uh, which in turn, has, uh, in turn has harmed the IDF's operational readiness. And so I think that it was very clear to Israel's enemies that uh, there is a weakness here that they could exploit. And they've been looking for ways to exploit it. And clearly, we now know, uh, I don't know how, how many weeks or months this has been in the planning, but the attacks uh, that we've seen in the last 24 hours from Hamas clearly were uh, were designed to exploit that weak that that weakness and that uh, were well planned. And uh, guy, what about the rumors that the military establishment don't want to give Ben Gvir, the hard right minister for national security, briefings? Well, they want ha- they want to have nothing to do with him. He's somebody who was deemed so extreme when he was younger that he uh, was uh, denied uh, military service. He couldn't even uh, perform regular military service because he was considered too extreme, given his association with uh, far-right uh, uh, groups. 
Um, and of course, uh, he is considered today uh, just as extreme, although he tries to avoid uh, some of the statements uh, he would have made uh, perhaps uh, 10, 20 years ago. He, by the way, has uh, really no business being in a senior capacity uh, in the cabinet or having any role for that matter in the cabinet. The only reason he's there is because Netanyahu orchestrated a merger between two far-right parties to ensure that neither was left out of the Knesset, because if one or both of those far-right parties had been left out, he wouldn't have a coalition today. So this was done for purely political reasons. Well, but the result has been, since he, he and others like Smotrich have been in the coalition, they've empowered the settler movement who have been more aggressive against the Palestinians and adding to the humiliation of the Palestinians. So it seems to me that in the, both the West Bank and in Gaza, this is a sort of payback, isn't it, for humiliation? Is this, in effect, uh, if you keep people in a cage, uh, then at a certain point they just can't take it anymore? Uh, I just don't understand why there's this need to humiliate uh, people that appear to be defeated in the first place. There's no reason to humiliate anyone. Obviously, uh, it is completely unfathomable that uh, some of the more extreme settlers have been allowed to humiliate Palestinians and in some cases brutally assault them. And there have been some killings as well. I, I don't think any of that justifies, of course, what Hamas did, which uh, pertains to uh, the, the killing of ordinary civilians uh, in the southern part of Israel. There's no connection here at all. Um, but I think what has happened in recent years is the complete uh, avoidance of the Palestinian issue. Netanyahu and his cabinet believed that they could avoid the Palestinian issue and, and simply negotiate these normalization accords with uh, Gulf states and kind of other so-called moderate Sunni regimes um, and avoid the, the Palestinian issue, just not deal with it altogether. And I think that this has proven to be a big mistake. Uh, and, and we see now that uh, there's no way to avoid the Palestinian issue. It is something that has to be addressed. And, and now Netanyahu is going to have to address it in a very difficult way that will bring Israelis and Palestinians even further apart than they were before. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today, Dr. Geiziv. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Geiziv, who is a professor who is a professor in the Department of Foreign Policy and Global Security at American University School of International Service and an associate director of the Meltzer and Schwartzberg Center for Israel Studies. He has worked in the United States Department of State on Capitol Hill and for leading nonprofit organizations that promote American involvement in Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking and is the author of Why Hawks Become Doves, Shimon Peres and Foreign Policy Change in Israel. And his latest book out soon is Netanyahu versus the Generals, The Battle for Israel's Future. And please excuse the change of tone uh, at the end of this interview because my internet service for Spectrum suddenly froze. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the colossal intelligence failure on the 50th anniversary of another Israeli intelligence failure.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Daniel Byman, who's a professor at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University and a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and the editor of the Lawfare blog. He served on the 9-11 Commission staff and is the author of a number of books, including A High Price, The Triumphs and Failures of Israeli Counterterrorism, and Road Warriors, Foreign Fighters in the Armies of Jihad, and his latest book is Spreading Hate, The Global Rise of White Supremacist Terrorism. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniel Byman. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And clearly there's a lot of uh, talk and I guess to some extent recrimination going on in Israel and, and in fact around the world uh, at the surprise that Israeli intelligence appears to have missed this surprise attack, uh, which was multi-layered and somewhat sophisticated coming from uh, Gaza. And of course, it it happened on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, which itself was an example of an intelligence failure, wasn't it? Uh, Absolutely. In fact, many people regard the failure to anticipate the Egyptian and Syrian attack then as Israel's biggest intelligence failure. So where would this current failure uh, rate? The 73 war was truly an an almost existential threat to Israel with armies uh, crossing um, into Israel and and threatening Israeli cities. Um, What we're seeing now isn't at that scale, but by recent standards, it's still a tremendous shock. This is a massive Hamas operation. It's multifaceted. It clearly involved an incredible amount of preparation and seems to have caught Israel completely by surprise. But it must be having a, a serious effect on the Israeli population's uh, morale, in a sense, because 22 Israeli towns were entered by gunmen. They abducted soldiers and civilians. They shot at cars and shot civilians, and they beat on doors trying to grab civilians as hostages. All of this was on television. They even had the film crews from Gaza filming a lot of this stuff, and terrified Israeli civilians were calling into radio talk shows. So what's your understanding of, I mean, we talk about the 73 war, foreign armies attacking, but I don't think anybody's ever been able to sort of wage war in the streets of Israel, have they? If you go back enough in Israeli history, you see variations on this. So, of course, in the initial struggle for independence, that was both a war of invading armies but also a civil war with the Israeli and Palestinian populations fighting each other um, within cities and within communities. Uh, But of course, the more recent example is the Second Intifada, where we didn't see a massive sudden operation like this, but there were, uh, for several years, near constant suicide bombings in Israeli cities. And this included not only those you know, settlements on the West Bank, but uh, cities in the heart of Israel. Um, and uh, for many Israelis, that day-to-day carnage is something seared into their memory. So in this case, militants crossed into Israel by land, sea, and air. So uh, even using gliders or some form, 
and then of course they use bulldozers to smash through the border fence. What's your understanding, Daniel, of where the supplies came from for the 2,200 missiles that were fired into Israel and other logistical support? Clearly, there had to be some foreign help here. So it seems to be a mix of both foreign and organic Hamas capabilities. Um, Iran has long provided a range of support. Uh, This includes probably most importantly money, simply providing financial support to Hamas for a variety of materials. Uh, But Iran has also provided weapon systems, including rocket and missile systems, um, and also know-how, so helping Hamas manufacture its own systems. And Hamas's um, efforts to build its own uh, rockets and missiles have gotten better and better with their range increasing. Uh, But I'm sure we're going to see some Iranian role in some of the particular systems we've seen. Um, At present, there's a lot of uncertainty. So I hate to say um, which particular attack came from where, but Iran has long backed Hamas in a variety of ways, including technology transfer. And I think we're going to see um, at least some Iranian role um, in this when, when we get a better sense. Well, we've known for some time that Hamas specializes in in digging tunnels, uh, particularly from Gaza into Egypt, where supplies come through. And of course, the Egyptians have Gaza under a blockade, as do the Israelis. But is there any evidence of tunnels being dug into Israel? So in the past, Hamas has dug uh, tunnels um, into Israel near the um, border as a way of, of doing what it did um, today, but on a, on a lesser scale. So we've seen this in the past. Um, in the uh, current round of fighting, um, tunnels were one thing that Israel was prepared for. So I'm not sure if Hamas used tunnels extensively or not. Uh, as you said, there were very innovative ways, gliders, um, attacks from sea, and so on, that Hamas has used. And I think it was relying more on these elements of surprise recognizing that Israel was looking for traditional means such as tunnels and that surprise was probably the most effective way of getting its people into Israel to do operations. But surely Israel has a network of spies inside Gaza itself, don't they? And there's no question that Israel has technical expertise. I mean, we've heard, for example, of the Pegasus spyware scandal. What kind of failures exist there? I mean, were they simply not able to pick up on all of this preparation? Or, or were the Hamas just incredibly skilled at preparing stuff on this large scale without uh, anybody noticing? Uh, I'm sure we're going to see a massive investigation, probably a multi-year investigation, on this exact question. Um, Israel intelligence, Israeli intelligence was clearly caught sleeping. And as you said, you know, Gaza has been something they've targeted for, for decades, really. And so the, to hide the scale of this sort of activity is, is quite remarkable. And it may be because, well, it's clearly that Hamas counterintelligence is better than Israel and many observers thought. Uh, but also Israeli intelligence may have grown complacent. They may have been blinded by looking in the wrong place. But it's a, a failure of stunning proportions that's going to get a lot of attention. Well, on Israel's television on Saturday, Eli Marom, who's the former head of the Israeli Navy, said on live television, quote, all of Israel is asking itself, where is the IDF? Where is the police? Where is the security? 
It's a colossal failure. The hierarchies have simply failed with vast consequences. So what does that mean, Daniel, for Netanyahu himself, and particular the hard right-wing Minister for National Security, Itamar Ben-Gvir? So this is a tremendous loss of prestige for Netanyahu. He's someone who is would be hard for any prime minister when this happens on their watch, such a, a disaster. Uh, but for Netanyahu in particular, he has always campaigned as the security candidate. He was going to be the one who would keep Israel safe from the Palestinians. And even his initial rise to power in the 1990s was very much about um, the need to uh, make sure that Palestinians can't do terrorist attacks on Israel. So he is vulnerable and highly vulnerable to the charges that he has raised against others, that he has um, allowed the Palestinians uh, to do this sort of attack. So I think it hurts Netanyahu's prestige personally, um, but it does also help right-wing voices in Israel, voices that say you can't trust the Palestinians, voices that say Israel needs to be tough and teach the Palestinian lesson. So I think we may see a further rightward shift in Israeli politics, at least in the short term, uh, even if Netanyahu's own fortunes um, fall because of this. Well, he's already gone on television on Saturday and said, we are at war. What does that mean? Is that so, total war or just another round of punishment in terms of airstrikes on Gaza? The rhetoric of war, I think, is meant to signal that this is at a level higher than previous rounds of airstrikes and back and forth with um, Gaza and various Palestinian entities, that this is something of a much greater scale that Israeli society will have to rally and that it's going to demand a much greater military response. Um, it is the sort of thing you would expect a leader to say after an attack of this scale, but it is a form of signaling to the Israeli population of how seriously this government will be taking um, its operations in the coming days and weeks. Well, it seems that the Hamas fighters captured both alive and and dead Israeli soldiers along with civilians, including apparently a grandmother. So they've taken them back into Gaza and they obviously will hold them hostage. So I imagine the agony is going to continue for a while, isn't it? They're going to milk this for all it's worth. For Israel, hostages have always been an extreme vulnerability. They've traded um, uh, many prisoners for um, a single soldier. They've traded uh, many prisoners for um, the dead bodies of Israeli soldiers. So to have multiple hostages taken at once, that's going to be a very powerful bargaining chip for Hamas that will shape both the long term in terms of uh, whether Israel will make any concessions, but also the short term, it will make military operations more complex because Israel has to worry about killing its own people. And how do you think this will impact uh, the broader geopolitics of uh, the Abraham Accords deal uh, between Israel and Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia was, in my view, clearly hoping to put the Palestinian issue on the back burner, that as part of any deal, they would uh, make some relatively mild demands of Israel that were not terribly hard to satisfy, but doing so in the hopes that much of the Arab world was focused on other issues, whether it was problems in their own country or civil wars going on, um, and that the Palestinian issue was not front and center. 
obviously this violence puts the Palestinian issue front and center. And as a result, it'll be hard to have successful diplomacy uh, with Saudi Arabia on other issues until this fades into the background, which might be quite some time. So given that we've seen previous rounds of Hamas attacks on Israel and Israeli counterattacks using air power, and they've been quite devastating, and of course they try to target as much as they can, but there's always civilian collateral damage because I think it's one of the most densely populated pieces of territory on the planet, isn't it, uh, Daniel? Uh, That's right. It's incredibly built up and there's no clear separation of, you know, military areas and non-military areas. And to make it harder, Hamas has a history of often positioning assets, um, commingling them in civilian areas. Um, And I think Israel right now is in no mood to be gentle, given what it feels is a grave threat. So this is a situation that we've seen, as I mentioned, we've seen these rounds of attacks and counterattacks for, for decades now. Is there any serious possibility here of any kind of settlement? I mean, what is the end game for Hamas? Hamas itself in Arabic means zeal. So these people are religious fanatics. There's no question about it. So is there any possibility of any mediation? Is there anybody that can broker a deal? Israel and Hamas have negotiated um, with some success, uh, really in a way for you know, over a decade since Hamas took power in 2007 in Gaza. And so Hamas is certainly very anti-Israel, but at times it's shown tremendous pragmatism in negotiations. These are often brokered by Egypt or other Arab countries. And so uh, right now it's going to be a fight and there's no way Israel is going to go to the negotiating table um, until it feels it's um, not only cleaned the Hamas operatives out of Israel, but sent a very strong message to Hamas. Uh, But in the end, I don't think Israel wants to reoccupy Gaza and wants to um, control that area. So there will need to be some degree of negotiations but what those are going to look like is quite unclear, in part because of the devastation of this current conflict, which makes negotiations very hard. So just in the last minute then, Daniel, is there another shoe that could drop? Could Hezbollah in the north uh, join in the attack? Uh, they are, of course, an Iranian surrogate, and Israel, of course, is quite vulnerable. This is the Middle East, so unfortunately, there's always another shoe that could drop. Um, Hezbollah joining operations is one possibility. Uh, massive unrest in the West Bank um, is um, something Israel also has to worry about. Um, Israeli attacks that um, go awry and kill um, huge numbers of civilians and really change your national opinion, that's another um, thing that Israel has to think about. So Israel will be pressing on as hard as it can against Hamas, but it will have to worry about um, attacks from other areas and other problems, even as it does so. Well, Daniel Byman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you again for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Daniel Byman, who is a professor at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University and a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and an editor at the Lawfare blog. He served on the 9-11 Commission staff and is the author of a number of books, including A High Price, The Triumphs and Failures of Israeli Counterterrorism and Road Warriors, Foreign Fighters in the Armies of Jihad. And his latest book is Spreading Hate, The Global Rise of White Supremacist Terrorism. 
We can take a brief station break and back assessing the future of the Israeli-Saudi Arabian normalization deal, which doesn't add up for the U.S. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Emma Ashford, who's a resident senior fellow at the Stimson Center, as well as a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point with expertise in the politics of the Middle East, Russia, Europe. Her work focuses on questions of grand strategy, international security, and the future of U.S. foreign policy. And she's the author of Oil, the State, and War, the Foreign Policies of Petrostates. And she has an article at the World Politics Review, The Saudi-Israeli Normalization Deal Doesn't Add Up for the U.S. Welcome to Background Briefing, Emma Ashford. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Emma. And do you think that the Saudi-Israeli deal coming out of the Abraham Accords is in trouble now? For example, the Saudi foreign ministry issued a statement on Saturday, quote, the kingdom recalls its repeated warnings of the dangers of the explosion in the situation as a result of the continued occupation and deprivation of the Palestinian people of their legitimate rights and the repetition of systemic provocations against its sanctities, uh, which I imagine is a reference to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third holy shrine in, in Islam. So already it looks as if there's a certain amount of tension between the two seems unlikely that a deal is going to be made, at least in the short term. Yeah, it's um, it's always been one of the points of friction for this deal. So so we've got the, the U.S. strategic interests, we've got Israeli domestic politics, and then we have this the question of whether the Saudi government would find itself capable of if effectively leaving its support for Palestinians mostly in the past. Um, and we know that this is an area where there's disagreements between Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who is, you know, of a new generation, and his father, who has been supportive of the Palestinian cause for, for many years. Um, and so the the attacks that we have seen this weekend, what what is uh, sliding into a war at this point, um, it's hard to see how it wouldn't make it more difficult to get this kind of normalization deal passed. Um, in particular, I mean, Hamas has probably undertaken these attacks partly in the hopes of raising the profile of the Palestinian cause in the Arab states, of increasing public opinion support for them, um, and making it more difficult for the Gulf governments to actually work with Israel. So you think that that is in part one of the reasons, or perhaps the main reason for the timing of this attack? It seems... um, the timing is suspicious in that context. There are not that many other reasons why we would see a significant attack at this point. Um, but the the notion that we might have seen some kind of Saudi-Israeli normalization by the end of the year, we could see that potentially having prompted this. I suspect we'll find out more in the coming weeks and months about you know Hamas's motivations in doing this. Um, but but again, I think the public opinion 
um, rationale for it is the one that makes the most sense at the moment. So let's talk about your article at World Politics Review, Emma Ashford, the Saudi-Israeli normalization deal doesn't add up for the US. And you mentioned that the Saudi human rights record, as appalling as it is, is a red herring, that the real problem with the deal, as it is currently being reported, is that it would do little to advance US interests on oil prices, regional stability, or even geopolitical competition with China. And even though it may be an admiral deal in achieving an historic agreement, the price that the Biden administration appears willing to pay is simply not worth it. So walk us through the points that you're making here. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so I guess I would clarify a little. Um, I don't necessarily think the human rights concerns are a, a red herring. Um, I think there are very real human rights concerns when it comes to Saudi Arabia. I think, as we've seen this weekend, the um, the concerns related to can the Israel-Palestine situation been resolved, those are very real concerns. Um, but in the article, what I actually drilled down on is the U.S. security interests in the region. And the way the White House appears to be trying to sell this deal is um, this will help us stabilize the region, stabilize oil prices and compete with China. Um, and I don't think that any of those is necessarily true. I don't think it's going to particularly improve oil prices in the long run. I don't think it's necessarily going to help us when it comes to China. Um, and so this deal doesn't make a lot of strategic sense from the, the US point of view. And, and that's really problematic. So where do we stand, though, following Biden's earlier campaign statement that he would make Mohammed bin Salman a pariah? because of the, the murder and dismemberment of Washington Post reporter Jamal Khashoggi. So obviously with the fist bump and the more recent contacts that he's had with MBS, is that in the realm of realpolitik where a nation operates not according to its values but according to its interests? That is certainly the argument that the administration is making. And it's um, there, there aren't that many um, U-turns as obvious in Biden's foreign policy as, as the one he's done with the Saudi relationship. He really has entirely flipped his position from, as you say, we will make the kingdom a pariah to now we're going to deepen this relationship all the way and give the Saudis a, a security guarantee of the kind we only give to our closest allies in Europe. Right. So there has been this just pronounced shift. And again, I, I do think that at some level, what is driving it in the White House is this notion that in order to compete with China, um, we need to build stronger relations in the Gulf. The, the concern that I really have with this is that it's not at all clear to me that, you know, giving Saudi Arabia a concrete security guarantee while the Saudis continue to build their energy links with China, their commercial links with China, their diplomatic links with China, um, it's not clear to me that's a very good trade-off. It sounds kind of like we are giving a lot more in that deal than we're likely to actually get out of it. Well, your article points out that even Donald Trump, who's hardly a, a modern Metternich, said in 2019 that the US is effectively paying to guard China's oil imports. 
Yeah, and there's a, a certain element of truth to that. Um, you know, the U.S. does have some interest in maintaining the flow of oil globally, right? Because prices in oil are determined globally, and so price spikes can still hurt folks here at home. Um, but I'm not sure that that necessarily extends all the way to, you know, giving Saudi Arabia um, a concrete security guarantee to you know, stationing troops there or in the region um, and to dialing up a relationship um, that really has become quite problematic in almost every other space than oil. Well, already, though, MBS and Putin, who seem to be very close, my understanding is that actually MBS admires Putin and particularly Putin's ruthlessness and doesn't particularly like Biden and certainly likes Trump. But nevertheless, Russia and Saudi Arabia are the two OPEC plus members who have just jacked up the price of oil. And many democratic strategists that I've talked to fear that sometime late next year before the elections that the both Putin and MBS could well jack up the price of oil again to hurt Biden in the election. I mean, that seems like a real probability. So... What's the political dimension is this? Is there some hidden chapter to this deal that we don't know about? Is is Biden basically trying to win over MBS and also Netanyahu, who at the moment has his hands full, but Netanyahu seems to prefer Trump as well. Is he trying to buy them off in, with some kind of deal where he'll give, the, give them what they want so that they won't screw him just before the next election? I mean... Uh- Never say never, but um, I, I think it's a fairly, I mean, it's, it's certainly a questionable assumption um, that the Saudis would um, agree to control oil prices. And I, and I guess I should note here, on Friday evening, um, before everything broke out in, in Israel, um, we did actually see some news reporting that the Saudis were apparently open to perhaps increasing oil production, which would lower prices um, over the near term. I think the problem for for Biden, and perhaps this is just because I'm naturally a suspicious person, but I, I do think the problem is, you know, if the Saudis were to agree to such a thing, um, you know, what kind of time frame are we talking about? Would they be willing to keep prices lower through next year's election? That's a very long time. That's that's over a year. Um, so to me, that doesn't quite pass the sniff test um, as a reason to actually go ahead with this deal, um, even though, you know, as I say, I think the oil price thing is being reported somewhat, but I just don't see it in practice actually working out that way. Um, and I could see Biden in particular getting bitten um, by changes closer to the election if he went through with it. So then what is Biden's motive here? Then why is he sort of cozying up to Netanyahu, who he's known for a long time, and uh, he met with him on the sidelines at the UN just uh, last week, I think it was, and <laughs> it was very strange. Did you see the video of the meeting where he crosses himself as he looks at, <laughs> at Netanyahu, as though he was somehow exercising a demon um so he you know they talked about their long friendship enough but it's clearly he hasn't given netanyahu the state visit that netanyahu wanted uh, and now of course netanyahu's calling for a coalition government working with lapid uh, and benny gantz as a coalition government at a time of war 
So obviously the situation's changed because of what's happening now in Israel. But nevertheless, what's going on there, do you think, Emma? Why is Biden reaching out to Netanyahu, who's you know, not entirely popular at home? He's cast himself as the national security president, and that's going to blow up in his face at the moment. And Ben Gvir, the ultra-nationalist national security minister, doesn't even get into security briefings, I understand. he's look, He's got egg on his face at the moment. I just don't get the politics of it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, certainly there has been, you know, from, from Biden's point of view, there has been internal contention within the Democratic Party um, over over both the Saudi relationship and the Israeli relationship, actually very similar dynamics in some way, although the Israeli part of it predates the Saudi part by a long way. But the idea that, you know, a U.S. foreign policy that prioritizes human rights um, really shouldn't be cooperating with governments that oppress um, some of their people or or the or that potentially occupy other areas. Um, so Biden has been facing this pressure, um, but it really does seem in the last year or so that the White House has very much pushed past that concern. Um, and th- there has been a lot of discussion in Washington about what the actual motivation for some of these moves are. The White House is being very quiet. Um, but but I think it seems like China is what is really carrying the day here. There is this notion that under the Obama administration, even under Trump, that the that the US has backed away from some of its more traditional partners in the Middle East, um, and that if it is not to lose them to China, then it needs to to sort of double down in that space. Um, and I, I personally am, am not of the opinion that, that this is a strategy that's gonna work very well. Um, but that does appear to be what is driving the voices um, inside the administration that are calling for closer ties with both governments. But China is able to have good relations with Saudi Arabia and Iran at the same time, right? Um, and they don't have a military presence there. Again, you know, w- why subsidize or protect the deliveries of uh, oil from the Gulf to China when the U.S. is now s- self-sufficient? It no longer, the, the Cold War rationale for protecting the Gulf because of it the, being the oil lifeline uh, don't, no longer applies. And that rationale is only going to get less pertinent over time, especially if we are entering some kind of green energy transition, right? I mean, it's probably going to take decades, but Saudi influence is going to decline over that period. Um, and so, yeah, you've you've put your, um, I think you've put your finger on what I think is the real nub of the problem with this approach to the region. Um, the Biden administration is effectively talking about locking the United States into one side of a, of a very rigid regional conflict, right? It's trying to build an anti-Iran coalition that brings together the Gulf states and brings together Israel. US military presence helps to, to back all of this. Um, and meanwhile, the Chinese are, as you say, um, dealing with all sites where it is, you know, tact, tactile, tact, where it is tactically advantageous to them um, and where there's the prospect for deals that can advantage both sides. Um, And so I think that this strategy that we're currently pursuing um, is one that's just not going to to work. And I would like to see the U.S. become a little more flexible with all parties in the region um, to try and replicate some of those Chinese successes. And how much is this growing alliance between Iran and Russia 
affecting the equation. It may be affecting the equation on the Israeli side. What, what do you make of that? Certainly, um, I mean, there has been increased cooperation between Iran and Russia, particularly on the weapons side of things and on the the working together to circumvent U.S. sanctions, whether that's on weapons, whether that's on oil, et cetera, or banking. Um, and so that we have seen that increase. Um, but I think, you know, everything that I, I hear coming out of particularly Moscow, which is uh, I've studied Russia for a long time, um, suggests that both sides are still pretty wary um, about this relationship. And so Russia and Iran are engaged in a very, um, you know, a, a relationship that's much more about transactionalism than it is about some long running alignment or partnership. Um, and I actually think it would be relatively easy for the US to pull Iran away from Russia um, if we actually decided to go go down that route. Well, of course, Emma, we have to sort of hold our breath a little here because other shoes could drop in the current war. At least that's what Netanyahu describes what's going on between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. The other shoe could drop in terms of Hezbollah joining in from the north. And Hezbollah, of course, is a proxy of Iran's. If that were to happen, I, my suspicion is that the Israelis may well strike back at Iran itself. Yes, there's there's certainly a possibility that this could spiral into a larger regional war. Um, and I think that is, you know, that is a risk that we should certainly not be discounting. Um, that said, for right now, um, you know, people are talking about the, the comparisons between, um, you know, it's been 50 years since the surprise attacks that started the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Um, and people are talking about the two conflicts almost in parallel. Um, and I would just say that for right now, this remains primarily an Israeli Hamas conflict. Um, and with any luck, I mean, there's there's going to be a lot of bloodshed. It's going to be very, very brutal regardless. But with any luck, it will at least stay confined to that conflict space rather than spilling out into something broader in the region. So just in the last couple of minutes then, President Biden is expected to make a major speech on Ukraine to explain what the US strategy is and particularly make a, a case for why the Congress should not cut off funds. And I, I'm not sure when that will be suggested. Maybe it might be on Monday. Do you think that Biden should also go to the public and explain what you and I have been trying to figure out? What is the real agenda here with pushing this Saudi-Israel deal that, as you've pointed out, has incredible flaws? It's not necessarily in the U.S. interests. And Maybe we should have a debate on that, too. I, I don't know whether that's likely or not, but would, would you agree that maybe it's necessary? I would certainly like to see the administration being much clearer about their, their rationales for pursuing this deal um, and for pursuing, um, you know, for considering offering the sort of scope of U.S. security guarantees that, that we're hearing about here. Thus far, they have not done that. Even when journalists have asked direct questions, the administration has been quite reticent. So I, I do think we, we need to hear more about that. Um, and, and I think much like the situation in Ukraine, um, you know, the administration is often very free with its rhetoric. Um, you know, we'll support Ukraine as long as it takes. Um, you know, we condemn violence. 
in the region in the Middle East, but but these are not necessarily strategies. Um, and so I think we need to hear a lot more from them in general on, you know, what do they think are practical solutions to actually solve these problems? Right, and at least explain why you think it's a good idea to give nuclear technology to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So, uh, Emma Ashford, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much. And again, I've been speaking with Emma Ashford, who's a resident senior fellow at the Stimson Center, as well as a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point, with expertise in the politics of the Middle East, Russia, Europe. Her work focuses on questions of grand strategy, international security, and the future of U.S. foreign policy. And she's the author of Oil, the State, and War, the Foreign Policies of Petrostates. And she has an article at World Politics Review, The Saudi-Israeli Normalization Deal, doesn't add up for the U.S. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by